Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. This is News Talk. Welcome along to this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up this week, Emmett Ryan will tell us all about Harmony OS. That is the new operating system powered by Huawei. We'll hear how Dublin City Council is continuing to work on Dublin's transition to become a smart city. Plus, Derek Riley will talk about electrifying your classic car. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Uh, but we're going to start with Huawei this week because they launched a number of new products during the week, but the big emphasis was on Harmony OS. And Emmett Ryan, who is the technology editor at the Business Post, joins me now. Um, Emmett, firstly, what did you make of the event earlier this week? Uh, in simple terms, Jess, it doesn't solve the only problem that matters, which is you still can't get in the Play Store. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, and it's not going to have what the Play Store and the App- Apple's case, the App Store has in terms of what users want, those core products, uh, those core apps they expect to have on a phone. Like if you're in China, it's perfectly fine, but also it didn't need to exist because the old open source version of Android could still be used to the exact same extent by Huawei. So I kind of look at it and go, well, like it's a shiny piece of very Android-esque uh, OS, but beyond that, with a few nice little bits to it, I suppose. But beyond that, it's just, it's a technological problem to what isn't a technological issue. Yeah, so let's talk about it a little bit more because for those who don't know, I mean, the operating system, it's its the fundamental thing that you're interacting with as a user of a device. Um, and it matters when you're trying to get apps that you need, whether it's for work or in personal life. And if you can't find it in an easy way, and if it doesn't work the way you want it to work, then it's not an ideal solution. One of the points that Huawei was making is that, you know, it's going to be compatible across all their devices. So they are going after the Android and the iOS model that everything just talks to each other beautifully. But as you said there, you know, the fundamental thing is that it's not Google. So from what you've seen of Harmony OS, what are some of the issues that you've run into when, say, you're reviewing a, a phone running Harmony OS? Well, I suppose it was, it's not even just a, you know, a phone running Harmony OS. It's just running a phone that doesn't have sort of, you know, access to what Android has access to, so to speak. Like, technically speaking, you know, in terms of, you know, how it's built, how it runs, there's nothing to complain about with Harmony. The problem is, like, you know, uh, say on Android, I expect the Play Store. On, on Apple, I expect the App Store. I expect one of those to be on whatever device I'm using is the short version. And that means accessing Google products, accessing all the other things that are essentially not allowed because, you know, America doesn't like Huawei. Uh, obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's fundamentally what it comes down to. And it just, that's where the difference is. Like, it's not an OS in terms of, you know, quality of, you know, technical experience. Like, you know, gliding through is not an issue. It's what I need to be, you know, available to that system isn't available. And it's not Huawei as, as a technical business's fault. Like, obviously, you know, you can argue, well, there's X, Y, Z in terms of the trade war. But the Huawei are trying to come up with a solution where they aren't the ones who can answer it is the short version. 
So does that mean then that for the foreseeable, as good as the Huawei devices are from a technological point of view, and they are excellent, like nobody can hold a Huawei device and criticize the design or the technology or any oh, aspect of that. It's, it's just the usability of it, isn't it? It's, it's, yes, it's, it's the end user needs, because here's the thing. If you stick, you know, the Google suite onto any Huawei device that's come out the last two years, the conversation about what the best devices are available changes immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, I, you know, the P40 from last year, and like, obviously you got, uh, you know, a few more coming through. It's like everything. It's like kind of going as a piece of kit. I'm loving them. I really, really am as a pure, you know, camera, audio, uh, glide, you know, like I said, the actual user experience for gliding through the various a- aspects of it. Like there's so much to like. Even the battery, for goodness sake, is really good on their devices. Like their watches are hilarious for their battery quality. Like they beat the everything out of everybody else when it comes to battery life in their watches. But uh, I just can't use Google, which I know sounds silly, but you know it's a fundamental tool. And you know WhatsApp, obviously, there are ways to get the APK. But again, for most users, going to get the APK, it's a bit of effort. Like, and uh, you know it's, it's more effort than they're willing to put in. So there are all these like small aspects which. You know, sound like, oh, well, come on, that's just a third-party product. But yes, but it's a third-party product that users just expect to be able to use. Like, on the upside, they can still use Microsoft products on it, which is one big plus. But that's kind of where, and that's mainly because like, of China's relationship with, my, with Microsoft as a company being better than pretty much every other U.S. tech company in existence. But uh, other than that, like, it's just... This thing, which is sort of the difference between this phone being convenient and not, and that's what it comes down to, it's convenience. Mm-hmm. It's not about the technical brilliance, because technical brilliance, is, it's, it's already won that fight, but it needs to still be convenient, like the sort of the basic expectation. It just can't solve that right now. And, you know, uh, I suppose I thought they might solve the trade war at one point. I am getting less and less uh, hopeful in that respect as we go on, Jess. Yeah, I, I think it's a funny one in that, Again, you have to applaud them for developing this operating system. What I've seen of it, it looks really nice. When I've tried to interact with it, I get so frustrated within seconds that I just end up walking away from it. You know, one of the new products they launched during the week is the Huawei Watch 3, which looks like a really nice watch. It's almost, dare I say, uh, Apple Watch-esque in that you've got the little crown that you can fully rotate. You can see all of your apps very similar to the Apple Watch. But when I tried to pair it, and this is no word of a lie, so it arrived to my house the day of the launch event and I was playing around with it and I tried to set it up on the iPhone, which I'm using, and it wouldn't work. I tried to set it up on the Google Pixel 5 and it wouldn't work. And then I tried to set it up on the Samsung S21 and it wouldn't work. And I had to go on to Huawei and say, I physically, as a technology correspondent, cannot get this to work. And they had to send me a list of instructions how to do it. And that's me with somebody who has, you know, the Huawei Pure Team's email address and can get yeah. it solved pretty quick. If you're an average consumer looking to buy this fantastic, affordable piece of technology, who are you going to turn to to get the tutorial on how to pair it to your smartphone? And I think that's an area where we need to look at more because the watch, for example, like it's a great example there because again, it's it looks pretty and it's I haven't given it a full test yet, Jess, but I'm guessing the battery is once again extraordinary because Huawei watches take longer to test because their batteries last so long, which is a always a positive sign. But I suppose the it's an area of communication for Huawei because the phone is essentially where they have no real way of saving not saving, but of solving the problem 
but they can solve it with the earbuds. They can solve it with the watch. They can solve it with everything but essentially, you know, something that requires direct access to the Play Store for it to be convenient. If you can essentially build uh, education into sort of the sales process, you know, simple, quick YouTube tip videos, so, but like also be pushing them out, be guiding that person when they're going through the install. Because when you're setting up new earbuds, like say the Buds Live with Samsung, you know, so you're following the little, the little steps when you're pairing it up. Have that built into sort of how you're selling it, like, you know, have a QR code on the box, go here, follow this. Something as simple as that, that needs to be to the core of how they're selling those. I say ancillary products, but it's not like, you know, they're sort of, you know, particularly small or cheap or in any way not great. They're really good devices, like, you know, but they need that age to be part of their sales process. I would love to hear from you. Uh, would you go through those steps? Would you be bothered? Do you have the time? Techtalk at Newstalk.com is the email address. Because Emmett, I have to be honest with you. I don't think I would, like, if it wasn't my job to do it, I don't think I would do it. If I get a new phone... I just want to get the phone set up the way I like having my phone set up. I want to have the apps and I want it done in 15 minutes. I don't want to have to watch a seven minute YouTube video explaining oh, how oh. things work. It's 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 just not like technology is a tool to make our lives easier. That sounds like a complete pain in the face. Oh, yeah. No, if, it, if it's that level, yes, it's hopeless. Just to be clear, I'm talking it needs to be really quick, like but. Say the Pixel Buds A, which I reviewed for this week in the paper. Now, it is only 30 seconds in terms of sort of the setup from like the unboxing to being in my ears and on Spotify, uh, maybe closer to a minute. I've forgotten exactly. I, I was literally timing it because that's one of the things that we, we do. And there was still sort of on screen, you know, prompts to follow, you know, which you just expect with those. But like it was within a minute. If you can't do that, if, if well, we can't keep it to within a uh, let's be nice and say three minutes for headphones and five minutes for a watch, which is being very very generous and that's from unboxing just to be clear that's not the youtube video mm. like, uh you know if they can't have that within like the three minutes for headphones and five minutes for a watch yeah you're right like people aren't going to go for it like no question about it with phones like i said i just don't see any reason i can recommend a huawei phone to be bought until the issue is resolved or until somehow huawei manages to make its app gallery a bigger deal than play and basically becomes a bigger company than google which let's not dance around it we're, that's not happening <laughs> you know so it's yeah. uh, so their only solution is to be back in the fold back in the family where they're allowed to do that and like, like i said like you know it's I, I hate reviewing them because we go with star-based reviews in the in the in the post and the bosses I, i've always asked you know and every time I get rejected which in fairness i agree with them on but i still have to put the fight in can i give two scores for huawei devices because mm. you know I, I i like tech radar in fairness to them they're they're great as well they've often gone they've it's not a universal policy but it's a near universal policy of not actually giving star ratings on huawei's because of the awkwardness of as a piece of technology we can love it but as a thing to recommend to somebody else i can't and they're wildly different yeah no and, and i'm in that boat and you know anybody who who's listened to me on the pat kenny show over the last few years will know that huawei were my go-to in terms of value for money but also amazing spec in terms of what you're getting how easy it is to use how intuitive it is and all the rest and when i got the p40 pro last year i loved the look of it straight away i loved the screen on it but I couldn't get WhatsApp onto it straight away. I couldn't get the News Talk app onto it straight away. And then I had to follow roundabout ways to get things like my Gmail account. And you just think, you know what? Life is too short. Yeah. Um, so when you look ahead then to the future of Huawei here in Ireland, 
like they've kind of gone off the boil a little bit, but do you think that the door is wide open now for someone like Oppo or one of those brands to swoop in and take that mantle of affordable, slightly less known brand, but still amazing technology for your money? Like there's definitely a door there for Oppo, but I suppose it's more like at the, at the premium end that sort of I'm annoyed with this whole issue with the, with Huawei in the US because Huawei, the quality of the P30 uh, to a lesser degree the P20, they basically put it up to Samsung and Apple that you need to make better phones next year. And mm. they did. And obviously by that stage, Huawei were in deeper trouble with the United States. But like it was Huawei's, you know, big leaps forward in quality with the P20 and P30 series that basically forced, you know, a, a, a Samsung and Apple to really set things forward. So if you're an Apple user and you're a Samsung user, you kind of owe a bit of thanks to Huawei, to be honest, for it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think Oppo, for sure, definitely have a real opening. I think the brand is seen as fun already, which mm -hmm. is good. I think they've got a lot going for them where they could do really well, particularly in, you know, a, a young back-to-college market that's coming out where, where you can basically be selling phones that are fairly good, being blunt about it. They're pretty bloody good phones with, uh, you know, fairly low prices. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those ones where, that back to college crew and remember like you know we're expecting students back on campus in the next academic year that's mm. kind of you know a time when a lot of them will probably want to when they know they're getting back on campus probably a time they'd want to get the new phone okay so if we look at the, the high end of the market as you mentioned there you've got samsung you've got apple they're not going anywhere will sony ever make a resurgent back to that top space in ireland uh, i don't think so but i think it's going to be very interesting to see what google does with the six series from pixel because mm. they took a step back with five to not go full premium in the market. But all the, the the rumblings, although obviously Google have a very different launch cycle to Apple and Samsung in terms of the time of year, they're much later in the year than both. Uh, and uh, so they sort of fall, fall between Apple and Samsung for their launch times. I would expect, based on the rumblings we're hearing, Jess, and I know you're hearing the same rumblings, that we're going to see Google go back to the top end of the market with the six series. I think they uh, the reason I think they didn't go at it last year was uh, the 4 Series had sort of proven the battery issue when it went to the very top end, like it was sort of like Scotty in Star Trek, she can't take no more capping, and the battery was just sort of the problem there when they went with the, with the, with the top tier of the 4 Series. I think they reckon they've got a, got, got there's the battery technology is developed enough that they can go back to where they wanted to go with the same sort of, you know, pushing the limits approach of the 6, so that's going to be interesting to see. I'm very excited for that one. Obviously, it's still months away, and I don't even think we've got the, the first leaks yet of uh, basic images, so but that, I think, is if you're looking at who the third player could be, if Google really gave a hoot, and I think they might, but if they really, really did, like there's huge opportunity there for the Pixel series. And what about OnePlus? Because that's a brand that I haven't actually reviewed a OnePlus phone in a few years now, but I always hear from like hardcore fans of it. Do we think that they are going to have a bigger imprint here? Uh, it's again, you see, that their issue is basically it's so wholly word of mouth and hardware fans because you're buying direct from OnePlus, which as you know, because you know, we've done the maths and I know you've done it with Pat, Pat on air, the maths, like when you buy a phone on contract, you are still like paying off more than you actually would have paid for for it up front. Like, but mm -hmm. that upfront cost will put off quite a few people with OnePlus because it's the visual, like, you know, it's like kind of going, because if I go to my mobile provider here and it's like, oh, I'm only paying this much for that phone. Okay, grand, but you're actually still paying all the, all the rest through your bill. It's like, yeah, okay. OnePlus is like, I'm paying that much for this phone. It's like, yeah, but it actually works out less than the Samsung or the Apple you were thinking about long-term. I think that's still an issue for them. And obviously just they aren't, you know, at that level of distribution. Like they're clearly liked by their hardcore fans, but 
I think they sort of have plateaued a bit in terms of sort of, you know, what they can do with just the hardcore. I think they need to be looking at how they become more than the the, the, the fan kids in terms of, you know, getting those sales out there. Yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting time to watch the mobile market. And obviously we will do that here on News Talk. Uh, Emmett Ryan, technology editor at the Business Post. Thanks so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Jess. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. Techtalk at newstalk.com is the email address as ever if you want to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. As I'm sure you know by now, um, the topic and the area surrounding electric vehicles is one that we cover quite a lot here on Newstalk. And I'm delighted to be joined once again by uh, Derek Riley of the EV Review Ireland YouTube channel to talk about how you can convert your non-electric vehicle into a bit of an electric vehicle Derek save me what are we talking about into a bit of an electric vehicle so what we're going to talk about today is the process behind it the different avenues that you can go down whether it's converting what you have or if you really like the look of an old car and you'd like to have that with an electric powertrain um and or you may have an electric car and you're not happy with the range and you want to add more range into it Okay, so this is something, is this something that can be done by the average Joe Soap or is it something that, you know, you need to get a really good mechanic to to get involved in? Great question. So if you are that way inclined, you can go and do a course. Uh, And the courses used to be run here in Ireland by a company called New Electric. And you would have an introduction course over two days and they'd outline what you needed to do. And then if you wanted to go away and do a a longer course, it would be like a a week long course. But that would set you up with the basic understanding. And then there's a really good open community out there of people helping each other. Uh, So I've got this type of car uh, and I'm looking to convert it. Who else has done it? What have you used? Etc. Etc. So um, there's about per year, there's probably between 20 and 50 conversions happening in Ireland at the moment. And it's growing all the time because people have a classic car or a car they've had for years and the best thing for the environment is you're not buying a brand new car because you the carbon is footprint has already been created by the car being made in the first place so my dream classic car jess is a car called the volvo p1800 okay um beautiful but I wouldn't have it as being an EV advocate. I wouldn't have it with, an, with a, a combustion engine in it. So I would convert it. So there's a couple of things you can do. You can uh, convert it um, with that sense of I'm taking the engine out. I'm not going to do any structural damage. I'm going to put in an electric motor and a battery pack and fit it around the car. But if I ever wanted to sell it again and that person wanted the car with an engine in it, I could bring it back to having a combustion engine in it. Okay. Or some people chop change stick this here stick this there and so you can uh, faithfully restore it or convert it so the decision is yours on that okay so when, when we talk about sticking the battery in mm. um i have so many questions and i'm trying to like form them all in my head <laughs> so you just like how do you know the battery for the size of the car how do Very you good. ensure that it is going to like you know fit from a, a structural point of view particularly uh-huh. if it is an old classic car and then also how do you go about the the charging aspect of it then 
lots of questions. I'll start at the top. So depending on the car that you, so you can have, we'll go with a Mini. You know what a Mini looks like. I know what a Mini looks like. So mm -hmm. the old classic Mini shape, you're not going to get much smaller than that in a car, but there are smaller cars out there. So what you can do is because a battery pack isn't one big block, you can start fitting battery modules in underneath the back seat oh. uh, through this, uh, where the petrol tank used to be maybe uh, through the transmission tunnel between the front and the back. So you can start moving and putting batteries into areas that may will become void because you don't have a petrol tank anymore. You don't have an engine block anymore. So you can start squeezing batteries in around the place. That's option number one, act, talking to the community because somebody has done it before you. Where did you put your batteries in your mini? Um, you can also potentially buy a, an actual full conversion kit that's going to be a bit more expensive because somebody else has put the work into it and has mass produced it. But literally, it will slot into the bolts that the engine was in for the electric motor. And they have the battery pack made up in a size that it goes here and the diagram is there, et cetera, et cetera. So that's to answer your first question. Where do I how, where do I put the batteries? Where do I squeeze in the batteries? It's it, You may have a smaller boot or you may have a back seat that is higher up than normal. So there may be compromises. Sometimes there is no compromises because the, the size of the car may take it and nobody would even know. Things you need to consider, the weight of the battery will mm -hmm. throw things off. You may you will have to put in heavier suspension because it will be a heavier car with the batteries in it. Um, you were asking about what type of batteries do I need, as in the size of the batteries and the modules that you use will dictate how far you're conversion will go so if you want to go longer you'll need more battery or battery a bigger battery pack so if you could uh, for a mini you might say 100 kilometers is going to do me xyz this is the batteries that you need this is where you need to put it in a mini i want to go 200 kilometers a mini may be too small dimensionally for the car to actually take that number of batteries and does this, you know, so then if you go to get your car NCT'd or any of those checks that need to be done on your car, do you need like a, a waiver or a form or anything like that to acknowledge the fact that you have modified the car? If you do it yourself, yeah, you'll need an engineer to sign off on all the pieces of equipment that went into it. And now NCT centres around Ireland are very uh, used to these conversions coming in. So it's not a big surprise anymore. It is, oh, you've got this car, but now it's converted. Okay, we know what test that needs to go through. So yes, making sure that it is legitimate and the certifications that are in Ireland are different to be to the certifications that are in potentially in the United Kingdom. So if you buy a converted car in the United Kingdom and want to bring it back to Ireland, you just have to be conscious of between jurisdictions, there may be a difference. Um, and just, I was learning all this from, from a guy called Kevin Sharp in New Electric, who runs these courses, I'd have called him there a couple of days ago, just to brush up on all my knowledge. Mm. And then the, the other question is just around the charging of it. So if mm. you do have the batteries, you know, you know, depending on where it is in the car, yep. does it ju then just charge like you charge your mobile phone or what way does that work? Exactly as if you charge a brand new electric vehicle. So some people can, uh, instead of the, where the fuel would have gone in, that cap, so where you're putting in the petrol and the diesel, you'll actually have the connector there like you'd see on a regular electric vehicle. So uh, you mightn't even, you'd pass an electric mini on the road and you wouldn't realise it's an electric mini and the person then would open up the fuel cap 
where the petrol would have gone in. And there is your socket that you plug in your either from your domestic charger or from your public charger. So there, there's some really nice ways of doing it. Mm. Some people have put it behind tail lights. So there's lots of ingenious places to put it. And that's all if you're doing it yourself. Now, Jess, you're on the big salary there. You Massive, could potentially yeah. afford mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you have a classic car. Mm -hmm. Could see you as a Ferrari person potentially. Well, and I'm a Lewis person at the moment, so I mean, going it's... from that to anything <laughs> would be a massive leap. <laughs> we need to get the driving license I first, know, Jess. But anyway, baby steps. But you have a classic car and you would like to convert it. So there are companies in Ireland starting to spring up. There's a company in Wicklow called Electrify, and you will give them your Ferrari or your classic car, and then they will convert it for you. Now, there's a price to that, and it is on the expensive side of things, but it's quality materials quality people uh you know everything signed off you don't have to worry about it there's my car come back in a couple of months oh it's all done for me so there are people out there that want that convenience mm. uh, also then you have the the conversation about well derek where did the batteries come from yeah and you're probably going to ask me that question you may have already asked me that in your multi-question at the start i do that uh, i fire like a like a quick gun <laughs> i just fire them at you so the batteries can come from a couple of different places. Some people take them from a older electric vehicle or one that potentially may have been involved in a car crash. Uh, and the actual battery component is perfect, but there may have been damage on the uh, external part of the electric vehicle. So whenever an electric vehicle crashes, there are people swarming around making sure, is the battery okay? Can I, um, could I use that in mine? What's happening now also is the likes of uh, those conversion companies are buying in brand new batteries because there's a warranty. They can be rest assured that nothing, that nothing is wrong with it with regards to it being potentially damaged in the crash. So you'll be able to buy it. And they're from the likes of uh, Samsung, et cetera, and other names, SIAC, SLK, no, SNK. There's a number of different companies that make brand new electric batteries for electric cars of any type that you'd see on the road brand new that you can just buy the battery from and put into your classic car DIY or using a professional body. Okay, one of the things that we spoke about in the uh, very first piece we did was about the, the whole notion of range anxiety. And I know that the the car companies will tell you that that's a thing of the past. It doesn't happen anymore. Everything is great. Um, but if you are someone, particularly this summer, you know, if we're all going to be holidaying at home or if many of us are going to be holidaying at home and you might want to do a road trip in your electric vehicle, is it possible to add battery into your existing electric vehicle? It, 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 to answer your question, yes. So you may have an older generation electric vehicle from 2010, 2012, 2014, and it has a range of 150 kilometers. Okay. And you regularly need a bigger range on that, maybe to 250 kilometers, just picking these figures out of the air. But yes, there are. there's a non-profit in Ireland called Range Therapy to counter range anxiety. Uh, and Eamon and the team down there will actually um, let you know what can fit into your car, what the cost will be. So the car itself is perfectly good. So for example, Eamon and the team work on Nissan Leafs. There's thousands of them in the country, uh, and but they may have a smaller battery. And now Derek or Jess needs a bigger bit of range. I always like to remind people that what's the majority of journeys that you do? That's mm. the battery that you need. It's not the one or twice a year where you're going north to south, east to west. You don't need that battery then for the other 360 days of the year. So as much as range anxiety is there, and oh, I'd like to, a, a battery that will go to Kerry or Mayo or Donegal and back without charging. 
it's not practical because you're you're carrying that weight of battery then around for the rest of the time that you're bringing the kids to school or you're going to the shops or you're going in and out to work you don't need that big battery normally so it's definitely cut your clock to your measure and what you need so just remembering that but to answer your question yes you can add a range extender battery to your current electric vehicle and if you're buying a brand new electric vehicle you can uh, you'll obviously purchase it on the back of what are the majority of the routes that I need. In terms of um, installing uh, an electric vehicle uh, functionality to a classic car, mm. what will that do to the price of the vehicle? I know you said you could swap back in the, the engine if you wanted to, if, if it came to the point of you selling it on or whatever. Yeah. But is this going to be something that's going to become super trendy in a few years now as we move away from old school fuel sources? Absolutely, 100%. And the, and the team at New Electric, that's their mission is to create that cottage industry here in Ireland. So they they, they, don't, they do conversions, but they do it back in their, in their um, main uh, locations in the Netherlands. They, they don't do conversions here in Ireland anymore, but they're running the courses to educate those people on the ground. And it may be Jess, it may be Derek, it may be somebody that's a mechanic and wants to upskill. might be somebody that doesn't have any mechanical background at all or electrical background, but can see the the benefit of this for themselves as a business, but also for the environment, for the economy, etc. So yes, I definitely think you're going to get a lot more uh, people inquiring about classic car conversions. Where do I go? What do I do? Uh, and the more people that are doing these conversions are, is going to drive the price down, which is exactly what we want. But then you'll have people that have a car that's maybe 10 years old, which mm. wouldn't be considered a classic but the car itself is perfect, the chassis, everything is all good, and they want to convert that into electric. And that's going to be the sweet spot where we're going to be able to see a lot more potential businesses cropping up and people saying, I'm happy with the car. I just want to change that fuel source. Like you're saying, I don't want any nasty fumes coming out the back of it when I'm driving along. Um, and that, I definitely think there's a huge opportunity there. Dumb question of the segment because there always has to be one. Uh, is it possible to take a car, say one that is 10 years old, and turn it into a hybrid so you're using the battery sometimes and then the engine other times? I'm sure it is. I haven't heard of it. Okay. I think if you're going to make that step, I think you're as well either to do one or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, because even on the road at the moment, Jess, you have a lot of uh, hybrid vehicles that would only ever run combustion engines and the battery that's in them never gets charged, never gets used and again, you're just carrying around that dead weight of 80, 100 kgs. So the, the size of a, of a good size person sitting in the back seat all the time, mm -hmm. you under, you know, not helping your performance, not helping. So why you would convert something on again, if you've got if you can convert it and you can, can put a battery into it that covers the majority, the 97, 98, 99 percent of your journeys, mm -hmm. that's what you know, that's the winner. Um, and then you've got the likes of, uh, I mean, instead of converting it, you've got the likes of AVA, AVA down in Powerscourt and Wicklow. And what they're doing, Jess, is you have clients that are looking for, I want a hyper classic car, custom made, brand new with using the old form. And you're talking budgets of over a million euros. Genie Mac. <laughs> and they have orders in for these type of cars. So you're talking your Ferraris, you're talking your Cobras, you're talking your, you know, really high-end collector items. And people go, I really like that car. I, I can afford it. I'm a successful entrepreneur or I've won the lottery or whatever it may be. But I don't want the grease and I don't want the smell of the petrol and the diesel. Now, Jess, you're going to get a lot of comments coming in on the back of the segment that people will say it is sacrilege converting a classic car. 
Yeah. And this may be the 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 alternative that people can have. So it's it looks like a classic Ferrari, Ford Cobra, whatever it may be, all these exotic race cars, coupes, grand tours, but it's a brand new car with brand new guts and gubbins in the inside of it, will drive better than any normal car, new car today. And so there's a whole there's a whole range of that there that we've talked about. DIY, take my classic car, DIY, take my car that's 10 years old, extend the range of my current electric car or I've won the lottery or I'm a successful business person entrepreneur and I want to spend the money on a brand new old looking car. And then you've got the likes of Opel are after bringing out images of their Manta. Now, I don't remember it because I'm not that old, but 50 years ago, they had a car called the Manta. Really cool looking, like you'd see in detective shows in the UK or, you know, and across the continent. And what they've done is said, oh, people really like that shape. We're going to make that into an electric car. So they're calling it a retro mod. And so this whole bringing back the nostalgia. So you have people that would have been growing up with this Opel Manta back 50 years ago will have remembered it as a kid and now go, do you know what? I'll buy that and it'll be brand new, everything on the inside, but it still look old. Ah, uh, here. <laughs> it's, it's when you think about it, you'll be able to drive along and you won't be able to know unless you can see the fumes coming out the back of it. Is that an electric car? Is that not an electric car? What we obviously want is all electric cars because um, it's better for everybody. If you are somebody who has done that, please email me. I just need to know that you exist. It's like a rare Pokemon. I just need to see it to believe it. Uh, the email address is techtalk at newstalk.com. Derek Riley from the EV Review Ireland YouTube channel. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. On News Talk. Thanks to Think. From digital signage to audiovisual solutions, we've thought of everything. Visit thinkpm.ie. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. We know that we're being encouraged to have an outdoor summer, exploring our towns and cities right across the country. One area that has seen a big technological investment in recent years is our capital in the hands of Dublin City Council. Earlier this week, I spoke to Jamie Cudden, who is the Smart City Lead for DCC, about the innovation that the city has gone through in recent years. Jamie, there's been a lot of talk over recent years about uh, smart cities, all connected, everything, the Internet of Things, how it's going to transform our lives. And I have this impression that some people think that these things are all very futuristic, that, you know, in five years' time or ten years' time, but a lot of the stuff that you guys have been working on over the last number of years, it's already here. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what we are talking about and what we're using when we talk about smart cities here in Dublin? Yeah, absolutely, Jess. It, it, it is true. Some people think it's all this crazy future ahead of us, but it's happening now. And um, I mean, even just how we use technology from a personal perspective, like how we use our phone, just think about the last year with COVID, how everything's gone online. I mean, the pace of change is absolutely phenomenal. So over the last five years, I've been leading uh, Dublin City Council's Smart City Programme. And we've been looking at, well, what's the potential of these new and emerging technologies and, and how can we deliver better services in our cities and how can we use things like sensors uh, to give us better data, what's happening real time in our city? What about, you know, where the rainfall is hitting heaviest, where flooding is happening in real time? How can we respond better, quicker, faster to, you know, the bins we see uh, around the city though that's a very uh, hot topic at the moment mm. um but the you know the sensors in the bins and solar compactors you know make for much more 
efficient delivery of operations. And, and even with the bins, we're collecting data in terms of how busy uh, they are, and you can understand how busy an area is. And we're even deploying Wi-Fi and, and things like uh, telecoms, uh, 5G off the, the big belly bin. So the, the pace of change is, is phenomenal. And, and one area where I, I kind of talk to people about in terms of the change is, you know, think about drones. I remember five years ago presenting to our senior management team about what the future is looking like for cities. And you use the word Internet of Things, connected everything, the things like 5G, things like drones. And they looked at me like I was I was mad in the head. And this is like 20 years away. But just think about, you know, how people use drones now for all sorts of things, for filming, for events, emergency response and how we monitor um, the environment and pollution. It's just a technology that's come on so fast. And the potential is just uh, is, is enormous for uh, our city and the, the services that we deliver. So, yeah, I'm, you can tell I'm very passionate about this, but it's uh, it's a really exciting space. And, and you know, the future is happening now. Yeah. And I, I love that idea. So is it fair to say that Dublin is a smart city then? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, on one hand, we can be a smart city and on another hand, we can be a not so smart city. But I think in terms of, you know, what we have in, on our doorstep in Dublin, we've got world-leading technology companies, amazing research centres, and, and some of the startups that you uh, profile. I mean, I was just, uh, we had a webinar last week with uh, Bobby Healy uh, from yes. MANA, and just looking at the amazing innovation that's happening in Dublin and in Ireland. So we're very much a, a smart city. I think what we're, what we're really trying to do is, is take all that innovation happening external to Dublin City Council and to, I suppose, the public sector, and say, hey, we have so many challenges that we're trying to solve from climate change to flooding to congestion. How can we take some of the brightest ideas and work with the smartest companies to kind of translate some of those technology opportunities into, uh, I suppose, the day-to-day operations of the city? And that, that's kind of my role in the city is to bridge that gap and to create those uh, collaborations. And we're very fortunate to work with companies like, like Google, IBM, Intel. Like We have the best and brightest uh, of, of global talent on our doorstep. So let's make the most of it. You mentioned some of the big companies there, but I know a big part of this, having interviewed members of your team and read about it a lot over the number uh, over the last number of years, you also listen a lot and you collaborate with some of the startups and you, you constantly have your ear to the ground in terms of, you know, what is like what is the next big innovation and what are small Irish startups who are innovating in the IoT space? What are they looking at and how can we implement that? Is that something that you're constantly doing, you know, trying to, to be ahead of it rather than playing catch up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a there's a real opportunity with technology, but there's a real challenge as well. Like, you know, what what's the right type of technology that we're deploying in our city there's the concerns about privacy there's concerns about you know just where where this is all going in the next 10 years and I think there's an important role for the city to kind of try and guide the direction of that and say well you know do we want things like facial recognition or people mining our our data in a very personal way you know we want to deliver better services in our city but we want to do it in in the right way and and we have a whole range of programs uh, with a whole range of startups, you're know, working with Enterprise Ireland and, and other. But, but for us, it's like if you can work with startups and, and solve some of the challenges that we have in our city. So we're working on areas like, you know, I talked about flooding. Um, one of the one of the projects which I I, got, I was very excited about is we, we worked with a couple of local companies to build these low cost sensors to, you know, measure when the when the gullies or drains overflow in areas that you know potentially can can have a higher risk of flooding the technology didn't exist that they built 
uh, five years ago, companies like Donalto, another company called M Semicon, and we were kind of co-funding with Enterprise Ireland this kind of innovation and actually using Dublin and working with the experts in you know flooding to build these solutions. And if they work in Dublin, you know how many other cities can you sell uh, these solutions to? So it, it's really yeah, it's about us kind of shaping. You know, these are the challenges we want to solve. We want to solve them in the right way. And here's opportunities to test bed and accelerate the innovation uh, on the city. And, and I think, you know, what we've tried to do the last couple of years, we're not going to transform Dublin overnight, but we can take districts and we can use districts to fast track uh, this innovation. So Docklands was the first area. You know, sometimes people want to put stuff up poles, put sensors out. And, you know, having that direct connection with the city is so important to kind of validate your pro product. And, you know, we bring in research partners to help evaluate. We help them commercialize. Yeah, we've worked with over 60 uh, startups over the last couple of years and we've co-funded uh, these innovations and, and you only have to look at you mentioned like the technology and the pace look at things like micro mobility and you know, electric scooters for example and the challenges and opportunities that that technology can can bring to cities and, and we've worked with a, a company in, in DCU as part of our smart DCU program called Luna and they're trying to build a type of technology that helps you manage the, the scooters more uh, effectively and make them safer and help the parking to be uh, done better so we're not blocking up the street so yeah great opportunities there and uh, we, we love uh, we love those ideas and bringing that innovation into the organization and inspiring people you alluded to it earlier on but um there's a lot of talk on the back of last weekend about the outdoor summer how we manage people where they are the the tools and the equipment that they need to be able to enjoy an outdoor summer and obviously you're associated with Dublin City Council, but this applies to any big city around the country. Can the, the smart tech that's already in place help us and help to, to enable the council to enable people to enjoy our cities safely in a comfortable manner and so on? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, it is a challenging situation. It's like a perfect storm of, you know, good weather and, you know, COVID restrictions and a lack of, places to go i think what we do realize is the importance of public space and how we manage that space effectively is so important for i suppose just supporting the the recovery so in terms of you know technologies i mean we we, we do look at obviously some of the data in terms of footfall uh, counters you know in terms of traffic flows you know even off our big belly bins we can we can understand how busy uh, parts of the city are and I think you know what we're really starting on in in this journey of of, of connected everything and internet of things is what's the point of having all, all of this data if you're not using it to make better decisions and we're seeing a lot of cities around the world particularly on the back of COVID think about how do we ma manage this space more effectively ensure that it's safe and and how do we use the data to inform our policy so I think we're all at the start of this journey but it's certainly something that can support uh, policy making. I mean, it's not going to be a miracle cure to the challenges that we're we're, we're facing, and you know, a bit of good weather and uh, takeaway pints, and you know, people wanting to meet up and socialize. You know, we're, we're not going to quite you know uh, sort out that problem, but I, I think the technology does play a role and will play a greater role moving into the future. Uh, one of the the new innovations that I know your team is very excited about involves uh, Dublin's great cycling community. Tell us a little bit about this new innovation. Yeah, this is one, one of my favourite ones. Um, and, and on the back of COVID, it's interesting. I used to get public transit everywhere and now, you know, I've started cycling. So I'm a big into cycling uh, the last year. And, and you've probably seen the massive change around the city in terms of the, the bicycle lanes and 
the investments that have gone in on the back of COVID to hopefully make it safer for people to, to cycle in the city. So one thing we've been looking at, and we, we were very fortunate to host an international cycle conference in Dublin in 2019 called Velo City. And as part of that, we put a kind of international challenge to show us some of the best ideas and best products and tech solutions that you know could be piloted and trialed in Dublin. We had three winners and, and one of them was a company called Umotional and uh, basically they they built a, a cycle app in Prague uh, with about I think about 20,000 users and it was really just this idea of you know creating a, a platform for the cycle community to come together uh, to also get access to the data where the the best cycling infrastructure is some people will say it's not great in Dublin it's got a lot better and we started then putting in like where the, the cycle parking is where you know bleeper bike moby bike Dublin bikes integrating the real-time availability of, of those bikes creating information in terms of the safest routes that you can cycle and all sorts of smart stuff going in in the background and you can put in kind of uh, comments in terms of maybe there's an issue with your route that needs to be solved so we, we launched it um, took a bit of uh, longer than we thought because of COVID, but we launched it um, last uh, two weeks ago and we've already got about 2,000 uh, signups, about a couple hundred people, 200 people cycling using the app, uh, putting data in every day. And it's building up a really nice community uh, with tips in terms of what people think of the new infrastructure. And it's been really positive and, uh, and, and it gives you a nice little uh, community to engage with and the city then can use the data to make improvements and hopefully uh, get more people cycling. So remind us what it's called. Dublin Cycling Buddy. Dublin is the, Cycling is, is the Buddy. App. Yeah, yeah. So it's available on the Play Store and the Apple Store, and uh, it's actually one of the highest rated uh, cycling apps in the world. I think it's about two hundred thousand uh, downloads, and I think it's a good example of, you know, rather than just build an app from scratch that's just, I, I wasn't going to say the word that's that's rubbish or, you know, look at what's the best thing happening internationally and and then try that uh, because you know user experience and just. Being able to use it effectively, I think, is so important in these. Anyone who's into apps, you know, you, you download's no good, you'll delete it. If it's good, you'll keep it and use it, and it will be something that will really add value to your uh, your commute. Yeah, these kind of um, community-based apps whereby it's actual users putting information in rather than guesstimates or computers making projections or anything like that, I do think are invaluable, particularly for people who cycle around the city the entire time. One point that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation was relating to privacy. And I know that people's backs are up. As soon as you mention um, new types of applications and if there are councils or any official bodies involved, people will be like, "Uh oh, what information do they want for me and how are they going to use it? So if I have this app on my phone, what level of data is required and the the data that I input then, uh, how exactly is that used? Absolutely. I think it's a really good point. All the projects that, that we develop under the Smart City program, we take that data privacy really, uh, it's really important to us. And each project has what's known as a data protection impact assessment to tease out these exact issues. And, and I think for the, the Dublin Cycle Buddy app, in particular, the, the data is is kind of only used to kind of, I suppose, help cycling in the city, help us improve the infrastructure. And it's all anonymized, aggregated data that's fed back uh, to the city with the types of commons and, you know, uh, I suppose, I suppose points on the map that help us understand where there's uh, problems or where there's issues. So, yeah, I mean, and also the terms and conditions of the of the data in the app store and the i suppose the play store are very clear in terms of how that data is used i mean we don't absolutely don't commercialize anything there's no reselling or this word monetization of data is absolutely a no 
uh, from our perspective. And it's the same across our whole suite of projects, even projects we deliver on, on Wi-Fi. Now there's absolutely crystal clear in terms of how the data is used and it's not to be used for purposes beyond what you've agreed to or signed up to. So it's really important for us. And I think it's really important for anyone participating in any of our projects. Yeah, I, I think people are like I. I'm so happy when, when people question, uh, you know, why a company needs data and how they're going to use it. So just to be crystal clear for anybody listening, uh, you when the information gets fed up from the bike app, it's not that Jess Kelly was cycling down by the keys and noticed this problem. It's just a user who did X, Y, and Z did this. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's grouped and anonymized, and it, it absolutely within all the the parameters of, of privacy enhancing techniques. That was Jamie Cudden, the Smart City Lead for Dublin City Council. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'm back on Tuesday morning with Pat Kenny, but John Fardy's up next here on News Talk. I'll chat to you next week.